And so now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place and in all places be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer and our Emmanuel. Amen. Do you hear the people sing, singing a song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. These are some of the most well-known lines from the Broadway musical Les Miserables based on the true story of a rebellion that happened in Paris in the early 1800s. Awful living and working conditions, significantly low wages, food shortages, and the spread of a deadly cholera epidemic were all leading to severe crisis in Paris and the people were ready for a change. And so in the early hours of June 5th, 1832, a group of students and workers gathered in the streets of Paris to protest. Their numbers gradually increasing by tens of thousands. And in the Broadway musical version of this moment, they begin to sing. Now, I've done some research this week, and I can't find anything that says whether it is historically accurate that the people actually sang in the streets in the June Rebellion of 1832. Might like to imagine it was that way. But what I did discover were plenty of other incidents where throughout history, singing has been considered an act of protest and even of resistance. For instance, we know that enslaved people certainly did this through singing spirituals. And the civil rights leaders carried on that legacy in the songs they sang in prayer vigils, marches, and protests. But one of the best stories I came across was about protesters in Leipzig, Germany in 1989. For several months preceding the fall of the Berlin Wall, every Monday night, the citizens of Leipzig would gather by candlelight around St. Nikolai Church, and they would sing. Over the course of two months, they grew from a small group of a couple dozen people to a thousand to more than 300,000 And finally, over half of the citizens of the city were gathering together once a week, singing songs of hope and joy and justice until the Berlin Wall finally came down just a few weeks later. Years later, when someone asked one of the officers of the East German secret police why they didn't stop this protest like they had so many others, The officer simply replied, we didn't know what to do. We had no contingency plan for the song. Now, I don't think that the Roman Empire had a contingency plan for Mary's song either. 
We've heard her song spoken aloud this morning. And while we don't know the notes that she may have sung, what we do know is that Mary's song helped to usher in a revolution that would change the world. A good friend of mine, Carrie, had her first baby earlier this year. And she said to me recently, you know, Mary Alice, being a parent has changed me in every way possible. The greatest change being that I now sing 95% of the sentences I speak on any given day. (laughs) And so I immediately thought of Carrie when I sat down to reflect on Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke. Mary has just found out the news that she will give birth to the Savior of the world. And what does she do? She sings. I mean, maybe like my friend Carrie, she can't help but to sing about her baby and the world into which he is about to be born. But if we think that Mary is singing a soft lullaby filled with sweet rhyming words, we're not listening closely enough. Because Mary sings about a God who brings down the powerful and lifts up those who have always found themselves cast down to the margins of society. She sings of a God who turns upside down the status quo, a God who acts in completely unexpected ways through the most unlikely people to bring truly good news to those who need it the most. As theologian Elizabeth Johnson writes, the Magnificat is a revolutionary song of salvation whose political, economic, and social dimensions cannot be blunted. People in need in every society hear a blessing in these words. The battered woman, the single parent without resources, those without food on the table or without even a table, the family who is homeless, the old who are discarded, all are encompassed in the hope that Mary proclaims. A few years ago, I traveled with a group to Suzhou, China, to teach English in migrant schools. And whenever our group was out and about around the city, people often came up to us and asked us what we were doing in China. Of course, they were never all that surprised to learn that we were there teaching English. In fact, we were often treated like celebrities because to have an American teach you English was a very significant thing. But what was surprising is that everyone we talked to, without exception, automatically assumed that that we were there to teach English in the most elite schools in China the most prestigious areas to students who were considered the best and brightest China had to offer. And whenever we responded that we were actually there teaching English in migrant schools to children whose families had come from rural China to find work and a better life, we always received these blank stares. One, because many people didn't even know that these migrant schools existed or that migrants even existed, for that matter. Even though they made up about a third of the working population, these children and families were mostly invisible. 
lacking even the most basic rights to education and health care. And two people gave us these blank stares because they just could not fathom that a group of people would come all the way from the United States to work with children, not who were at the top of their society, but rather with those who were considered to be at the very bottom. And each and every time we had this conversation, which was quite often over the course of our trip, I thought about how God might be planting seeds, completely turning upside down the societal structure of who's on top and who's on bottom, who's in and who's out, who is deserving and who is unworthy. And friends, that's what Mary's song is all about. But if I'm being honest, the reality is that I can't even begin to understand the full significance of this reversal that Mary is singing about in today's text. Because while I may have seen extreme poverty, I haven't experienced it, not firsthand. And I don't know what it's like to truly be hungry either. I know what it's like to work through lunch. But I have always been well-fed and even overfed, especially at this time of year. Which is why, for many of us, Mary's song is a challenging word to hear because it pushes up against our own places of privilege. In fact, the words of Mary's song have been so challenging for some people to hear that these words have actually been banned at different times and places around the world. For instance, in the 1800s, it was illegal to sing or to speak the Magnificat in churches in India under British rule. In the 1980s, Guatemala's government considered Mary's words to be too dangerous and revolutionary and outlawed them there as well. The song had been creating quite the stir among the poorest people in Guatemala, inspiring them to believe that change was actually possible. And when a group of Argentine mothers placed the words of the Magnificat on posters throughout the Capitol Plaza after their children had disappeared in the midst of state terrorism and military dictatorship, the military of Argentina outlawed any public display of Mary's song, too. You see, the reality is that Mary's words, the words of a 13 or 14-year-old pregnant, unwed mother who was most likely a very little means herself, these words push up against any and all places of privilege in this world, And I would imagine that they push up against any and all places of privilege in you and me, too. But as one pastor said recently, when the gospel has become bad news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the brokenhearted and imprisoned, and good news to the proud, the self-righteous and privileged instead, it is no longer the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is this. Where do we see Mary's dream coming to life around us? Where do we see those on the margins being lifted up and the hungry being filled with good things? 
And how will you and I live into Mary's dream for the world, for the world her baby boy came to save? But you see, the reality is, Highland, that I have seen Mary's dream come alive in so many ways through you. I've seen Mary's dream coming to life through us, through Jane Parker, who has faithfully and persistently led us to welcome a family from Afghanistan, a mom, dad, six kids, ages three to 14. They arrived in Louisville on Thursday, a bit earlier than expected, and nearly 15 of you showed up spontaneously in the middle of a day to offer a warm meal to stock their kitchen with food, to clean, to make beds, to hang up shelves, and to fill their dressers and drawers with good things. Lauren Jones Mayfield said, it was beautiful. I've seen Mary's dream come alive through your generous giving to Highlands Community Ministries this year. Their Christmas drive supported 650 families, Troy told me this morning. And through your support of Highlands Christmas Store, right here where we have served over 130 children in our community this Christmas. I've seen Mary's dream come alive through your giving toward alternative gift cards, supporting things like the Hope Bus and the annual Baptist build of a Habitat for Humanity home and the Safe Passage Initiative helping families flee from Afghanistan. Our friend Karen Thomas-Smith is here with us today. We will be hearing more from her in a moment. And Karen, I must say that we see Mary's dream coming to life through you. Through the bold and beautiful and justice-bringing, kingdom-building work you are doing in Morocco. Friends, Mary's dream is coming to life all around us these days. The question is, where do you see it? And how are you going to join in? As we've been doing during Advent, I invite you to share your responses to this question on social media using the hashtag AwakenToJoy. Pay attention this week. See where you see it popping up among you. Because that's the thing, that there is joy in creating a more just and loving world, isn't there? And even and perhaps especially at times when we are surrounded by so much pain and devastation, injustice and inequity, we need joy and our world needs joy all the more. As Willie Jennings says in the words you will find on the front of your worship folder today, Joy is an act of resistance against the forces of despair. Joy, in that regard, he says, is a work that can become a state that can become a way of life. And if you find yourself wondering where to begin in this work of joy, well, maybe, perhaps like Mary, like the protesters at Leipzig, like the people in the streets in Les Mis, perhaps it begins with singing. 
Do you hear the people sing? Lost in the valley of the night, it is the music of a people who are climbing to the light. For the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even the darkest night will end, and the sun will rise. May it be so, Highland. Amen.